Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any sharing in the Spirit, any sympathy, complete my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united and agreeing with each other. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my loved ones, just as you always obey me, not just when I am present, but now even more while I am away, carry out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God is the one who enables you both to want and to actually live out his good purposes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right. Well, we're back. We're continuing our journey through the book of Philippians. Um, If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, uh, we have begun this journey that'll take us, I think, right up to Advent. Um, So we still got a ways to go. But um, if you haven't been with us, or if you just need a quick reminder, um, Paul is writing a letter to the church in Philippi. And Paul deeply loves these people. He is increasingly thankful for these people and for their faithfulness to God, and by extension, their faithfulness to Paul as he is on this mission and this journey um, to share the gospel of Christ. And Paul, because of this ministry that he has, because he is preaching and teaching about Jesus, he is in prison. Um, And he, in fact, well, it's believed that this imprisonment was kind of the last thing leading up to his execution um, at the hands of the emperor. So this is kind of uh, a last last trek. And so this is uh, believed to be maybe his last communication or one of his last modes of communication with the church in Philippi, who he repeats multiple times that he dearly loves. The sense is that he is writing this final letter. Um, And they are truly his partners with him in this spreading of the gospel. And he writes this with that deep gratitude and thanksgiving, um, but also with encouragement that they would continue on in their faith and in their mission. And for a lot of chapter one, which we've covered over the last two weeks, Paul has been writing about his love for the Philippian church. He's been writing about his present circumstances in prison and the advancement of the gospel. Um, And he has been kind of reiterating some of his own personal convictions and beliefs about his life and his mission. And then towards the end of chapter one, where we were at last week, he adds an important message that I think kind of turns his focus to where we're going to be today. And so I want to make sure that we are on the same page with that. So at the end of Philippians one in verse 27, he says, most important, live together in a manner worthy of Christ's gospel. Do this whether I come and see you or I'm absent and hear about you. Do this so that you stand firm, united in one spirit and mind as you struggle together to remain faithful to the gospel. So in other words, Paul is saying, I just want you to live in such a way that whether I am with you or not, wherever I'm at, 
Live in such a way that I am able to see that you are standing united together in one spirit, in the spirit of God. And this should kind of clue us in on something, right? He wouldn't just bring this idea up out of the blue of like calling out a problem that's not actually a problem, right? But there's, there's a problem with uh, the church in Philippi, and the problem is that they seem to have a lack of unity. And in relation to some of Paul's other letters, he's not quite as like on them about this lack of unity, right? So it's, it's maybe not as deeply seated of an issue in the Philippian church as it is in other uh, churches that he writes to. But he does notice that it's kind of the beginning stages of this disunity um, and that there's the potential to do some real harm when the church is divided, right? I think we all can hopefully understand that a little bit. But Paul has, has heard these early rumblings of disunity and division in this group of people that he loves so much, that he respects so much, and he has to address it in this letter. And so this is where we see kind of the shift from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Obviously, there were not chapters in his original letter, um, but there's kind of a shift here where we have divided it into chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, and I think it's, it's very important for us to understand this context, because I think the entirety of the passage that we're talking about today hinges on making sure that we contextualize the language, the, the words that are being written. Because um, Paul seems to use this letter as um, an opportunity to lay out some really deep and rich theology. Um, he, he is obviously a, a scholar of Jesus. He knows about Jesus. He has studied and conversed with people and, and formulated this kind of, like, theology is the study of God. And so this theology that he has, he is putting pen to paper with this theology, and it is incredibly deep. And I'm going to say that multiple times today because it's, it's dense, if you will. Um, but the theological depth of this letter is not because Paul wants to just give the Philippians kind of a master's level lecture. It's not because he wants to necessarily teach them all of these things, although that is definitely possible from what he writes. But his purpose here is very practical. He's not just teaching this theology, but his purpose is to challenge them to take this theology that, that theoretically they already have some of and to apply that to their lives and, and how they live. Because if we have great theology, but it doesn't affect how we live, then it's not really great theology. It's just being able to say words. To have a good theology, to have a good understanding of anything, it should affect our lives. It should change who we are and shape who we are. And so Paul here is laying out these theological truths about the identity, the humility, the servanthood of Jesus Christ. But he's doing it as a means for calling the church to deeper unity, to deeper humility, to do what he points out in the life of Jesus, to have that be lived out in their own lives. So as we walk through this passage, um, we need to remember that it's framed inside of this context, inside of this disunity that Paul is speaking into in the Philippian church. Um, and for Paul, again, this is one of his last opportunities to do this, his last opportunities to do this for a church and, and people that he has personal connection to, deep uh, emotional connection with. So in this letter, what he's really wanting to do is not to point them back to things that he has done in the past, not to point them back to things that he believes and, and a, or a checklist of any kind, but to point them back to the person 
of Jesus Christ. The person who should be at the center of all of their life together, of of all of our life together, the person of Jesus Christ. And his purpose here is to give them kind of a pattern of thinking and living that is modeled after and grounded in the way of Jesus. So in order for Paul to do that, he begins with this section of the letter, at least, with four statements that start with the word if. And when we read that word in the context, in this 21st century North American context that we have, if is kind of conditional, right? There's uncertainty with if, right? If I have the time to do that, or if we're available next weekend, or if this, if that. And so there's a certain amount of uncertainty of whether this is actually going to happen. But in the the New Testament, which was originally written in Greek, that word if, it often is used in a different way. Um, It would be more like saying, if I am your friend, and I am. It's It's like throwing the if out there, but also having the assurance of it being the case. Um, It's a way of kind of grounding requests or commands or instructions in, um, like, it it gives it foundation. And so, since this, then that. Since I am your father, you should listen to me. (laughs) Right? Since I, I don't know, since you taught me how to make coffee, let me make it for you. Um, So that's what Paul is doing here by starting these statements or this section, this uh, couple verses with the word if. If these, there's four things. If these four things are in fact true for the Philippian church, then they should have this solid foundation of unity in the church. If they have experienced these four truths, then they must now focus on that foundation and let that change how they live. Um, So I'm going to read, we're going to be going back to the verses a lot because again, this is really deep, rich theology. Um, So back to verses three and four. He says, don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Um, Also, I I think I jumped ahead of myself. (laughs) We're going back to that one. I apologize. Um, So since they have this encouragement in Christ then they are to be like-minded, thinking the same way, right? They, they have, he has these if statements in there that connect to one another in verses one and two. If there is any encouragement in Christ, then think the same way. If you have comfort from his love, if you have sympathy, then have the same love. If there is any sharing or other translations say fellowship in partnership with the spirit, if there's any sharing in the spirit, then be united and agree with each other. In other words, Paul is saying that these powerful realities of God's grace are the basis for Paul's plea for them to live in this type of way, for them to find unity with one another. And I don't think any of us would disagree that the church today could use some of that unity, right? It's not like this was an only in the early church days disunity. And it's not like our current disunity is any, any crazier than that day. But I want us all to hear these words as Paul's giving us this powerful reminder of God's grace and the opportunity that we have when we live into that grace to be united, 
to be living in unity with one another. So Paul then moves from there, and then he appeals to this kind of our theme of the day, I would say, and that is this word humility. So now I'm going to, I'll read it again, because I got ahead of myself. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. So there's always this temptation for us to be like the opposition, right? The opponents of Paul um, that I, I preached on a couple of weeks ago, the opponents who are, they're not necessarily teaching bad things, but they don't have the right heart. Their heart is not for the goodness of the gospel. They operate out of this, as Paul says, it's selfish ambition, selfish, selfish purposes. They look to advance maybe their own agenda, their own ideas, their own thing. And I would say that's not always a bad thing. I would say it's good and natural for us to have our own interests and our own passions, right? But just because we have those interests, just because we want certain things, does not mean it is good and does not mean it's even the best thing. Paul says in a different letter, in his, letter to, his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, everything is permitted, but everything is not beneficial. Everything is permitted, but everything does not build others up. No one should look out for their own advantage, but they should look out for each other. So obviously this theme kind of runs through Paul's letters, which means he believes it. He cares deeply about it. He thinks that it is not happening in these churches that he is writing to. And so what he's earnestly asking the Philippians to do here is to have equal concern for the interests of others. And this is not some kind of a plea to revoke all of your own interests and for your life to be miserable so that others' lives can be less miserable than yours. That's not what humility is. Humility isn't somebody giving you a compliment and you saying, oh no, oh no. That is maybe a form of humility, but that's not the true humility that Paul is speaking to here. Humility isn't a lessening of self. Humility is a lifting up of, the other, of others. Yes. Humility is, is recognizing that others are, are valued and worthy of being treated well. Not just being not treated badly, but being treated well. Of, of preferential treatment. Of treating others as, as better than yourselves. And this is incredibly countercultural, right? The world around us does not operate in this way. The world around us is all about mine, 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 more, 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 for me, 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 right? I think those are technical terms for the philosophies of the world. Um, but, but literally, there are, there are entire businesses and technologies and corporations that are all focused on lifting you up. And, and making it so that you think that you are the most important person in the world. So that you will give them your time, your attention, your finances, right? There, there's always a, a deeper purpose behind it. Um, the, the thing that I always go back to when thinking about this is credit cards. I, I have a credit card. I use my credit card. But credit cards give you this kind of false sense of security and comfort that I can pay for whatever I want. But then you get down the line and realize, wait, I don't actually have that much money in my bank account. 
And then that spirals and spirals and spirals. But that, that gives us this idea that we are the ones in charge, that we get to decide what is good, what is right, what we want to do. We get to decide everything is focused on me, 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 and what I, I, I want. But this idea of humility, Christian humility, flips that on its head. It turns this me, me, me into a you, you, you. It lifts up those around us, recognizing that you are just as special and as worthy as I am of anything that I get in this life. It takes it from my thoughts and my interests and my passions to lifting up your interests and your thoughts and your passions. If you want to get real Jesus-y about it, I guess, you could say, love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know. Maybe you prefer it that way. Um, but beyond just this idea that, that Paul is writing about, Paul is calling them to this deeper humility. He's not just saying this is what it means to be hu- humble. He's saying, do this. Be humble. And as he calls them to this humility, he writes out this beautiful description of, of what is the greatest example of humility that has ever been and will ever be. And that is Jesus. And in verse 5, he says, Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. And this is, this is the hinge point of this text that we're looking at this morning. The first four ver- verses are saying, this is, um, this is the humility that we are, are looking at. Right? This is the, the picture of the kingdom of God um, existing on earth that we, we believe that God created us to live in unity. This is what the first four verses are, are about. And then there's this transition, adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. That kind of summarizes those four verses. If we adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus, we will live in unity with one another, we'll, all that. And then these next six, seven, six, six verses, math. The next six verses are then taking that, that ideal image and saying, Jesus is that ideal image. Jesus lived that. Jesus showed us how it's done. And he says, adopt that attitude that was in Christ Jesus. If we have any hope of living in those first four verses, we have to look to these next six verses and use that as a model, as a reference point. Paul Again, in wonderful detail, it's, it's, it's called the Christ hymn, and we're going to reread it in just a second. But he describes for us the mind of Jesus. He, he says, adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus, and then he describes what that is. But before he describes it, he tells the Philippian church, he tells us that it's, it's not just there because we want to learn it and hear it and think, oh, wow, that's great, and admire it from a distance. He's, he's giving us this preface, like, listen to this, because then you have to do it. Hear these words because then you have to adopt it and apply it to your life. And I think it's, it's very easy for us to skim over these verses and think, wow, that is wonderful writing. Oh, Paul, that's great truth, fantastic. And it doesn't change anything. And so as I read these verses again, in just a second, um, I want you to kind of prepare yourselves to go on this journey as if you are a member of the Philippian church and Paul has sent this letter to you, to me, to say, this is how you should live. And hear it as that 
rather than hearing it as deep, wonderful theology about Jesus. It can work as both, but I want you to hear it with that mindset that the Philippians would have heard it in. Again, it's called the, the Christ hymn, and it's been discussed and debated and dissected for centuries um, because it makes so many claims and, and lists out so many truths about God's nature and character revealed through Christ Jesus. Um, so I'm going to read it for us, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mm. Good stuff, Paul. So even before Jesus Christ is revealed to the world in this stable, this manger in the stable in Bethlehem, even before that, Christ was in the form of God. In the form of God. Um, and, and we're not just thinking form like, like physical form or even like visual form, like I can see that, oh, that, that looks like God. It's, it's more than that. It's deeper than that. Christ being there in the form of God, it, it means that, that that word form is, is something that means it's, it's an eight to who Jesus, to who Christ is. The, the essence of Christ is God. It's hard to, to put human language to, um, but, but Christ has been there from the beginning in the form of God, equal to God, but different and unique from God the Father. There has never been a moment where Christ existed outside of God and vice versa. So Christ, in the form of God, in the essence of God, has obviously then direct access and to that, that power and that nature and that character of who God is. The God who spoke all things into existence, the God who created all that we see. And yet, it says that Christ did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. Christ did not use that for his own gain or notoriety or influence because equality with God, while, while our human perspective might be something that we want to, to hold on tightly to that, we don't want to relinquish that. We want that to be ours and keep it to ourselves. Uh-oh. <gasps> Christ! Since we're talking about, ooh, that's hot. Ooh, that's hot. Since we're talking about Christ, it feels wrong to let it burn out. <laughs> it's too short of a wick. Just pretend it's there. <laughs> Christ is still here, I promise. Um, so equality with, with God. The, this form of God that Christ has is not something that he keeps to himself. It's not something to be used for his own gain, selfishly. And, and as I, I read this and think about it, I hear echoes of Genesis 3 and and Adam and Eve in the garden, where they have, this temptation is there, right? This temptation was there for Christ. And where they chose selfishly, where they chose to, to misuse this equality with God and to exploit it, 
Christ did not. Because Christ is the better Adam and the better Eve. Christ is the perfect example of what humanity, sinful humanity, cannot be. So we take that and Christ then empties himself. And this specific part of this Christ hymn has been, I would say, maybe even more dissected than the rest of it. Uh, and talked about because there's lots of disagreement and debate over what it means that Christ emptied himself. Many believe that Christ emptying himself means that he gave up his divinity, he gave up his form of God to come to earth to be human. Um, And in my humble opinion, I disagree. Nothing is subtracted from Christ as he comes to earth, as he takes on the form of human beings. Nothing is subtracted, but rather humanity is then added to his nature. He takes on the form of man in addition to the form that it already exists in the form of God. The Greek word for emptied is kenosis. You may have heard it. Mike really wanted me to, to dive deep into that one, and I said, maybe next time. Because um, <laughs> there's too much good stuff in here. Uh, So kenosis, it can mean to empty, to pour out, um, or metaphorically to give up some sort of status or privilege. So Paul is not saying that Christ became less than God or gave up any kind of divine attributes of God. But what Paul is stressing is that Christ, who had all of those privileges and rights as the king of the universe, then emptied himself fully of himself. The emptying is emptying himself of himself, of selfish desires, of selfish interests, of selfish gain. Christ emptied himself of himself. And at no point did those selfish temptations that afflicted him because he, was, he took on the form of humanity, those, those selfish afflictions, he did not give in to those temptations. At no point did they cause him to choose apart from the will and the way of God. He emptied himself Paul says, by taking the form of a slave or by taking the form of a servant, Christ in the form of God has now taken on the form of man and with it, then the form of a servant, but a servant to what, or a servant to whom maybe as we see throughout Jesus's time on earth, Christ comes to serve humanity, right? He has teachings, he performs miracles, he literally washes feet, right? Christ came to serve humanity. But that doesn't mean that Christ came to be a servant to or a slave to humanity. At no point does Christ become a slave to humanity. Christ is always a slave to the will of the Father. Christ is a servant to the Father, and as a servant, he is always submissive to the will of the Father. Again, this doesn't mean that he's any lesser than or that he gives up any amount of his divinity. But in submission, Christ submits to the will of the Father. So although they are equal, Christ is a servant, a slave to the will of the Father. And so as such, this obedience that Paul talks about is obedience to the will of the Father. Obedient to the point of entering into broken and sinful humanity putting on the form of that broken and sinful humanity. And even beyond that, to then go to the cross for broken and sinful humanity. And even beyond that, 
to go to the cross because of broken and sinful humanity. And I won't get into all of the morbid details of the cross. But let's just say that it was not the simple, convenient way of executing prisoners. Crucifixion, death on the cross, it was humiliation to the fullest extent. It was a public statement by Rome that the person who is being crucified is beyond just being disliked. They are beyond just being disrespected. They are there to be humiliated, to be mocked. It is complete and total destruction of the person, physically, mentally, socially, emotionally, all of it. It's a shameful death that they didn't even permit for Roman citizens, which the the church in Philippi would have been Roman citizens. They didn't even permit it for, for their people. That's how humiliating and torturous it was. There were, there were Jewish people of the day that believed it w- if you were crucified, it was because you were cursed by God. And yet, Christ came, Christ emptied himself, took the form of a slave, and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was the ultimate humiliation And because of that, it is the ultimate expression of Christ's obedience to the will of the Father. Because God didn't just tell humanity how much he loves us. God doesn't just repeatedly say, I love you, I love you, I love you. I mean, yes. But then God does something about it. God shows us, God gives us this example in spite of the fact that we turn our back on him, that we spit on him, that we mock him, we torture him, he still came. Christ emptied himself, became a slave even to the point of death, death on a cross, so that we might recognize and understand the love of God and the new life God offers to us. Because this is what God the Father desires for us. This is how deeply God cares for us. And so, therefore, God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was precisely this humiliation of Jesus Christ that became the grounds by which he was then exalted. By humbling himself on the cross out of love, he demonstrated that he truly shared in that divine nature of the God who is love. The essence, the form of the God who is love. And it's through this humility and this love that Christ Jesus has been exalted, that he is lifted up, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And around that time, it would have been, again, countercultural. Because around that time, the Roman Empire, um, the, the, the title of Caesar was the, the ruler of that time. And the, there was this common political allegiance and this oath that Roman citizens had to take that said, Caesar is Lord. Those three words, Caesar is Lord. And while it may have been seen as a somewhat simple display of political allegiance, 
Early Christians, I would say, rightly interpreted that as idolatry, saying that Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. They often gave their lives because they refused to comply to those simple three words, Caesar is Lord, because how can Caesar be Lord if Christ is Lord? Okay, that was about as quickly as I could go through Paul's Christ hymn and the depth that is in there. But I hope we all recognize the truth that is in there and how important that truth is. It grounds our understanding of who Christ is. That is, that is the gospel right there. But we have to remember why Paul is writing this. We have to remember the context in which we find these words. And the context is that it's, it's not just, again, to give the Philippians this theological education, although it definitely serves that purpose, but it is truly to, to challenge them and call them, this church that he dearly loves, to put on that mindset of Christ, to adopt the attitude of Christ Jesus. He continually calls them to that. He wholeheartedly believes that what is so important about this belief about who Christ is and what he has done is the fact that we are called to then embody that truth in our daily lives. It's not just something that we're supposed to believe with our head and then carry on living life. It's something that we have to take heart. We have to take it to our heart. We have to believe it in our heart and allow that to transform how we live. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. He hasn't written out everything that means because um, I don't know who could to have the to fully understand that idea of the same having the same mind of Christ. But he has kind of selected some of these qualities of what that looks like that speak specifically to the needs of the Philippians. This lack of unity that, by Paul's assertion, stems from a lack of embodying Christ's humility. And after reading through all of that, I don't think I can do it. That's hard, right? I'm too selfish for that. I'm too weak. I want life to be easier than that. I don't want to have to think about all of the decisions that I make, the actions that I take, the thoughts that I have. I don't want to take that and put it inside this understanding of who Jesus is. I'm too tired and I'm too stressed and life is too hard for me to worry about that. Right? I got to keep doing what's right in front of me. But Paul is urging the Philippian church and urging all of us to live just like Jesus did. To forget our selfish impulses and our desires, to empty ourselves, to humble ourselves, to give all that we are for the sake of others, to be completely obedient to the will of the Father, and potentially even to be humiliated in the worst imaginable way at the hands of those we thought we could trust. Adopting the attitude of Christ that sounds impossible, right? But it's a good thing that it's not up to me. It's a good thing that I am not doing this on my own, and it's a good thing that Paul's letter continues 
into verses 12 and 13, where he says, Therefore, my loved ones, just as you always obey me, not just when I am present, but now even more while I am away. Hear this in bold. Carry out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is the one who enables you both to want and to actually live out his good purposes. For Paul to say, carry out your salvation, that is entirely different than Paul saying, earn your salvation. Go out and and win your salvation. That's not what he is saying. Paul is calling the Philippians to put forth real effort in their Christian lives, not to work for their salvation, but to work it out. When we come to know Christ and, and understand at least somewhat of what Christ has done for us, we don't just get to sit back and relax and be assured of going to heaven. That's not what faith is about. That's part of it, but that's not what it's about. We are called to then work out, to carry out our salvation, to see it evident in every area of our lives, to put that salvation into action. Because it's not just a gift that you receive once and for all. Salvation is grace that picks you up out of your sin, that, that pushes you forward into perseverance and growth and development in your spiritual life. And it's not easy. Following Jesus is going to make you uncomfortable and make you have to make decisions that go against what you want, that go against your own human self. It's going to cause you to have to stand up to your feelings and emotions and say no to them. It's going to make you choose what you know to be true about God over what you think is true about yourself. It's going to force you to choose forgiveness and compassion and integrity over things like revenge and bitterness and anger. It's hard. But more than just carrying it out, Paul says to carry it out with fear and trembling. How do we carry out our salvation with fear and trembling? This is not the kind of fear of evil or anxiety of, am I going to go to hell or not? That's not what this fear is. This fear is that ultimate reverence of the all-powerful, almighty God that we serve. It's a righteous and awe-filled reverence of the God that we believe in. And this trembling is not trembling out of guilt or shame or fear. This trembling is, is joy-filled trembling. We have had a positive encounter with the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the Jesus Christ who came and lived and died for us. We have had that experience, and it is so joyful, joy-bringing that we are trembling. And so we do this. We carry out our salvation with fear and with trembling, not because we are strong enough or mature enough or good enough, Because like that final verse there says, God is the one who enables us to both want and to actually live out his good purposes. It's God's love and God's enabling grace that will see us through these times in our lives. It is God at work in you. It's God working in all of us to both give us the desire and the will to do it. But that's not an excuse for us to just live in that inaction and laziness. 
God doesn't just do this work in us in the background of our life where we keep on doing what we, what we do and God just fixes everything in the background. That's not what this is. God's work in us transforms our will and our actions, our choices. This is not a passive thing. We have to do the hard work of carrying out our salvation. We have to do the hard work that God calls us to. We have to adopt the mind of Christ that allows God to work in us to transform our thoughts and our choices and our actions as we respond to his grace. And this is what Paul so greatly desires for the church in Philippi. And this is what I, if I could speak for Paul, he desires for the church of Longview Church of the Nazarene. He desires for all of you. This is what Pastor Mike would say he desires for all of you. What I would say I desire for all of you to adopt this same attitude that is in Christ Jesus. The love and humility that Christ showed us in coming to earth, in taking on the form of man and of servant and of slave and going to the cross to die the ultimate humiliating death. That love and humility is what still exists and is being offered to all of us today. And it feels like we should be taking communion right now. I apologize that we're not. But it is offered to all of us. Whether this is your first time hearing it or your millionth time hearing it, it is continually offered to you, not as an assurance of going to heaven, but as a charge, as a challenge to work out, to carry out your salvation, to make it affect every stinking part of your life. And I admit, I fail more than enough times for one person because that's the way that sin works. But this is something, this is, this is a long journey that God takes us on. It's not a perfection that happens immediately. Something that continually transforms you and challenges you and shapes you and forms you into a follower, a disciple of Christ. Because if left to our own devices, we choose that laziness, that inaction. We choose that selfishness. Paul urges the Philippian church, Paul urges us to put on this same mindset, to adopt the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, to live and to carry out our salvation with fear and trembling, not because we want to do it or because we are able to, to do it, but because God desires it for us. God works in and through us to bring it to fruition. So this morning, I'm going to uh, close this message in a time of prayer. And if you hear this call from God to go deeper, to more fully adopt this mindset of Christ Jesus, I want you to be praying with me. And as I pray, I'm going to do the classic preacher thing, where if you, if you feel like God is calling you deeper, I want you to raise your hand as we are praying. And this is, this is not so that I can feel better about myself. Don't hear it that way. This is, this is accountability. Accountability for you in this semi-public way of saying, yeah, God is at work in my life. But also accountability for me so that I can be praying for you, so that I can be journeying with you as one of your pastors in the ways that God is at work in your life. So if you are ready to accept this grace that God offers to you, if you are, are ready to be challenged to take this mind of Christ and apply it and adopt it in your own life. I want you to raise your hand as we pray. Let's bow our heads. God, we thank you 
for the ways that you are working in all of us, individually, collectively, the ways that you are at work in and amongst your people, the ways that you shape us and form us. God, this great gift of your humbling, this great gift of your emptying of self in service of the will of the Father, God, this is what we celebrate this morning. This is what we believe with our whole hearts. So God, for those who are raising their hands and for those who are not, God, we ask that you would continue to be at work in our lives, that you would shape us and form us to be better than we were yesterday, not by our own will, but by your will, that we would look more and more like you in this world around us. God, that we would adopt the attitude that is in Christ Jesus. We thank you, God. We praise you in your name. Amen.